This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Take 478. I don't think when I did the clap. We haven't got time to clap, Musa. Hello and welcome back to the Stadio Podcast and Ringer FC. I'm Musa Kwonga. I'm Ryan Hun. Ryan, I'm scared to ask how you are. I'm actually... Uh... Edvard Munch. Was, the, was that Twitter account, The Endless Scream? That's basically the Stadio Podcast. Today. Today has been... Okay, do you know what? Here's the thing. I'm actually blaming myself. Do you know why? Don't blame yourself. No, do not blame myself because... And this is the, there's a point here. On Sunday night, I was like, you know what? I'm going to have a fairly quiet week. I just did my two podcasts at Stadio. And the rest of the week, I'll just recover from the big writing job I did recently and get ready for the start of August and loads of writing starts. Again. Dude, I was, I, I was the same. I woke up this morning, Arsenal victory, Pacers undefeated in the bubble, beating the Mavs, Oladipo draining shots from deep. I was like, nothing could go wrong this week. It's my fault too, because United qualified for the Champions League, beat Leicester 2-0 away, professional victory. I thought, you know what? It's fantastic. I got some exercise done yesterday. <laughs> I've been doing loads of wow, on my bike. There's so much uh, polite British boy energy in the room I've at been the moment. So... She's like, no, 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 it's my fault. No, 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 it's my fault. No, it's not. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Everybody's sorry. But anyway, long story short, we've had so many tech issues today and also some builders are completely trolling Musa outside his window and decide to drill, then stop, then drill, then stop. So we were going to change location, then we weren't. Anyway, we're here. I think we're just suffering from fixture fatigue. You think it's that? Yeah, I think we're in the red zone, as Arsene Wenger would say. Uh, Both of us are about to sustain major injuries. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we will get into the, uh, the fixtures this week. But before that, any admin? Yes, admin. Don't forget our theme tune is for sale, stadio.bandcamp.com if you want to go and buy it. We're donating all the money. All of the info is on there about the three organisations that we're donating to. We're going to try and do our first round of donations in a couple of weeks. Thanks to everyone who's bought it so far. Minimum three euros, but you can pay what you like. Also, shout out to Onyeka on Twitter, who last week, when we were talking about the LA expansion team, Angel City, um, in the NWSL, 
she tweeted us and hipped us to a uh, amateur roller derby league. I suppose we should say derby, but it's derby. You know, roller derby sounds weird, huh? In LA called Angel City. And they've been really suffering through the pandemic, like a lot of amateur sports organizations have. And they're open to donations as well. So we're going to follow up the, the podcast tweet that we usually do with a, we'll dig out the link to their donation page and we'll post that as well if you fancy donating to that support amateur sport. They've been going 15 years and I think obviously they had a bit of attention last week because of the an- announcement of Angel City. But it did raise an interesting question about whether Angel City should be called Angel City. You never know, maybe they'll come up with something even better. Collaborate maybe, I don't, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Because actually I just think cool. sometimes you look at like the kind of old school European sporting clubs where you've got like a rowing club that also plays cricket. Yeah, it'd, yeah. It'd be really cool to be like, actually, the name's really lovely. Would it benefit you? Fund them. To form a partnership. Yeah, that'd be so cool. I don't that know. would be I, great. I, I don't know. Yeah. I just think, yeah, yeah. Oh, other quick admin. Shout out to Lou Engelfield, Director of Pride Sports UK and the Campaign Director of Football Against Homophobia. Her and I, Lou and I had a great chat on Saturday about football, homophobia and all the rest, Man City as well, because she's a big City fan. You can find that on my Instagram, which is at Okwonga just because Lou's doing great work with them and I just nice. thought I'd pick it up, yeah. Yeah, there was some really great stuff came out from that weekend, actually. Ledley King, shout Ledley King, coming along and being an ally, doing the work, really respect that. Um, and great nice. to see so many other voices doing important things, yeah. People who discovered us after we joined The Ringer or because we joined The Ringer may have noticed that we have been darting around all over the place since we joined The Ringer. Weirdly, we're kind of quite hyped for football to start winding down a little bit. Yeah. Those of you who have listened to us since we began will know that we like to jump around anyway. There is a piece on the Ringer site, it's like an introduction to Stadio, where we highlighted a few past episodes that kind of give the range of stuff that we're going to do. Because obviously we're, we're starting to move into territory now where there is less football. There definitely isn't football every single day in Europe like there has been for the past however long. So yeah, when football slows down, we do these kind of more conceptual episodes. And usually when football is on, we don't dart around quite as much as we have, but the fixture list has been chaotic and therefore we've been a little bit chaotic. So today we're going to do a Premier League exit survey because the Premier League wrapped on the weekend. Talk about the relegations, the Champions League spots, a couple of other bits. We need to talk about the Jordan Henderson Football Writers Player of the Year as well, because that raised some Twitter contention. I mean, what doesn't raise Twitter doesn't, contention? Yeah, exactly. Now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we're going to talk about Juve winning their ninth straight Scudetto. We'll also talk about Houston Dash winning the NWSL Challenge Cup, their first ever trophy. They've never made it into the playoffs before. And now they're going home with a trophy. And Rachel Daly sat there chilling with two beers and a Leeds United shirt on with a winner's medal around her neck. Absolute boss level. Incredible. That tournament, actually, we'll get to it in a bit, but the way that was executed on and off the field, that was, you know, they really bounced back from that early infection, the COVID breakout. They really pulled that together so, so well. Yeah, I mean, zero yeah. positive cases in the teams that travelled and were in the tournament. Likewise with the Premier League, I believe. Zero yeah. positive cases since football returned. And this is not something I will say a huge amount, but props to the Premier League because they have wrapped up their 352-day season in the country and the world that has suffered the third amount overall deaths due to COVID-19. And they've wrapped it and they've done so without any major issues or as far as we're aware, any positive cases of players coming back. 
Wow. Wow. So where do you want to start? Should we start with Arsenal-Watford? Because Watford, if they'd won the game, they would have stayed up. Yeah. And I think they probably should have won the game. Bar two amazing saves from Emi Martinez that I can remember off the top of my head, and there were probably a couple more as well, and some missed opportunities. They could have easily won this game four or five three. And we're actually ahead of Arsenal on the on the XG after the game. I think their XG was over three. It was such a weird first half, I thought. Arsenal, whilst being super sloppy, Cruyff turning on the edge of their own box, firing passes out of play, looking like they were already kind of on the beach ahead of the uh, FA Cup final this weekend, somehow found themselves 3-0 up. This is the thing though, with a player like Aubameyang, they win you games you don't deserve to win. And this is the thing, mm. this is the margin, this is the cruel margin about all these things, these teams that don't make it. Timo Pukki didn't score since the restart. He didn't score after the restart. Mm. You like, And you know, so many players, so many strikers, momentum is key to their game. You get on a hot streak. But Aubameyang is one of those few, you know, and there's no disrespect to Pukki, Pukki's an outstanding player. It's more that there is that sort of top 2% of striker who could basically freeze, could cryogenically freeze a Bamiyang for five months and bring him out and give him a one-on-one and he'd score it. Like, you know, it just because that guy scores and finds space on muscle memory alone. Mm. And I think that's the thing. It's almost, there's something almost quite weirdly fitting about the fact that Watford lost to a team out of form because it shows that you can't afford to drop your level. Like, at the, the Premier League, with the, the resources being so unequal, you can drop your level defensively for a split second and someone will have a forward who cost that much money or who's worth that much money and they'll bury you. And against a team with poorer finishing, Watford might have survived. Yeah, maybe. I think Tierney's goal was good. I think Aubameyang's second was obviously pretty special. However, yeah. I just don't think the ball should have got to him. I think it was really poor defending from Watford. And obviously his first touch sends the ball up above his head. And no one goes in to make a challenge. Now you can understand no one wants to get their head kicked. Yeah. However, I just thought for a side that were trying to stay up, Watford could have defended better than they did do in those first 20, 25 minutes. The reaction to that goal, the reaction to Bamiyang's second was interesting, Bamiyang's um, third goal was interesting because you just saw the resignation of the defenders as if this is almost like the body language was like, this has been happening all season. Yeah. You just saw it. You just saw the kind of, what the hell is this? This is, it's almost like that's the perfect metaphor. Like you can't afford to give players of that quality, that kind of time. And that's what they've been doing all year. It's such a strange season for Watford. I mean, it, well, it ended as, as it began with the sacking of a manager. Javi Grazia went four games in. Bring back Kike Sanchez Flores, who they fired a couple of years ago. Firing him, bringing in Nigel Pearson for 19 games. Firing him two games to go. Now, that decision, I still feel, is quite a confusing one. And I'm not saying they would have necessarily stayed up if Pearson had stayed. I did say that I could have seen them taking some points off of one of Arsenal or Manchester City. And if I was being honest, the Arsenal game was the one where I thought that was the most likely because of it being a week ahead of the FA Cup final and the potential for Arsenal rotating. Now, they didn't rotate a huge amount. They took players off towards the end. But, I mean, it's very, very easy to say now, but I do wonder whether actually, because they only went down by a point, having lost their last two games of the season, whether they may have felt that that was a strange decision now or whether they regret that decision. Because Watford, I think, in the shouts to Sporting Intel on Twitter, they posted a, a table of the Premier League since football returned. And Watford were 18th in that table and they finished 19th in the end in the overall table. 
So if you were going to make that move, why not do it five games to go? Yeah. I think I said this before, but I think I'll regret the lateness of it because when they made the choice, they were absolutely certain. You don't do a thing that big without the kind of buy-in. I mean, Watford mm-hmm. seemed like a club that listened to their players. If you look at the way they gave Troy Dean the leadership issue on Black Lives Matter, I felt they listened to the players. So I feel like they didn't make that lightly and maybe they're just regretting they didn't do it sooner. You know, it's a bit sad as well because Watford in the Premier League, they've been a club that have kept people honest. They've mm-hmm. beaten teams who've gone slightly below their level or they've beaten teams at their best. Like, you know, they beat Liverpool 3-0. They beat United, um, you know, a couple of times under different managers uh, in the last few years. They've really, they've been a great opponent, actually. They've been a team you could never, at their best, you'd go to Vicarage Road and be like, a point is a good result. Like for yes. a long, yeah, for a long time. Game. Yeah, for a long time, a Vicarage Road appointment was a good result. So it's a shame to see them go out like that. I think the, the loss of Gerard Delafay played a huge part in that as well. Delafay is a curious player. For example, we always talk about Nacho Monreal, yeah, who's yeah. just always a 7 out of 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Delafay is probably the other end of the scale in that sense, like quite mercurial. Yeah. He can absolutely torch teams. Like I remember him torching Arsenal for Everton. He's caused Arsenal a lot of problems as well for Watford and he's caused a number of teams problems. But then some games he would just not really show up. Yeah, That could have been the difference between no points in the game and one point in the game or one point and three. And if you look how tight the margin is, that kind of player towards the end of the season would have been so key to have. But how often have we seen that? An outstanding individual come through in the closing stages of a relegation battle and go on a run that's mind-blowing, especially under that pressure. I mean, there almost needs to be a retrospective on that. You look at like Iago Aspas doing it, Carlos Tevez doing it for West Ham to save them. Because in those games and everything's so tight, you rely on someone who almost exists outside the team tactics to just get the ball and be devastating. Everyone else is just so focused on preserving what they have and you've got one guy that goes to the casino with like a bag full of chips and you need that, like you need that joker. Give me the ball, get out of the way kind of vibes. Do you know, it's funny actually, there's a category of like, give me the ball, get that way player. And I would say Carlos Tevis is in that. Di Maria is in that. Gareth Bale, Southampton. No, it's Gareth Bale at Spurs was like that. Every generation, there's a handful of players that come along. And I would actually mm-hmm. put Zaha in that box as well. Wilfried Zaha too. Mm. Let's jump into this question because also Bournemouth were relegated after, despite beating Everton at Goodison Park, they just left it way too late, Bournemouth. Ben Pummel said, Bournemouth and Watford going down, though always sad, felt like a necessary refresh of sides who have reached the natural end of a cycle in the top flight and grown complacent. I will quote again the excellent Grace on football. I think she said it's possible to say something like Eddie Howe has been great at Bournemouth, but also has made some mistakes in the last few seasons. And I almost feel like in his case, the mistake was just staying a season too long. Was it last year we said he should have gone to Hoffenheim or somewhere like that? Should have gone to the Bundesliga? Well, yeah, you look at like Brighton, Brighton changing manager. They moved away because they wanted a different style of football, even though Chris Huden had done just fine. And now Potter's done a great job and it's just a transition towards a different style of football. And it's possible to replace a manager when they haven't done anything wrong. And it's sometimes right to do that. Mm. We saw at Southampton with Pochettino coming in and- yeah. How did such a great job. And the thing that, that saddens me for him and for Bournemouth, I'm sad for Bournemouth, obviously, as a club because they've, been, they've done such a great job. But I'm also sad for Howe because, if we're being cynical, like his market value now mm. has been affected. It has. Like his market value 
two years ago, people are linking with the Arsenal job. And now, I mean, that for different reasons, that wouldn't happen, but, but the caliber of job that, that he could get now, I think is a bit diminished. And that's a shame for both him and club, I think. I still think he could probably get something like, trying to think off the top of my head. Say, for example, if David Moyes leaves West Ham, I think Eddie Howe could go for the West Ham job. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I'm not sure how likely it is to happen, but if I was Eddie Howe, I would think about looking overseas for a bit. I think it would really help him as a coach. There is a tendency to feel a little bit too comfortable. And maybe that's what Ben's talking about with his, with his point on Twitter about complacent. But I think maybe in terms of complacency, instead of complacency, it might be experiencing a level of comfort that means that you don't feel as much pressure as you maybe need to in order to escape those situations. Now, not for one second saying that Eddie Howe obviously isn't disappointed to go down, but he probably knew that his job was pretty much safe because he had so much goodwill in the bank. I think knowing when the right time to go is before it gets to a point where you're relegated is a real skill from club and manager. And it's a really brave thing to make and not a lot of sporting directors or directors of football have absolutely nailed it. That famous song of Bocelli and Brightman, Time to Say Goodbye. Wow. Yeah, I just think of that. I just, I just, I think it's like some German boxing champion had retired and they made that song for him or something. And I remember thinking, yeah, there's something about leaving when things are sweet. Yeah, do you know what, man? After the tech issues we've had today. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. Got oh me my, thinking. Oh got my, me thinking. Oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> I don't get it. Oh, what a time. No, 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 I don't blame you. This is, oh wow, it's been, it's been emotional. We just, uh, we just need two weeks off before pre-season. That's all we need. That'd be incredible. Oh my goodness. So Bournemouth are down. They're going to, mm, I think Bournemouth have got a lot of problems ahead of next season as well. They're going to have to probably sell quite a lot of that squad. You think they've actually paid quite a lot out in transfer fees in the last few years. This is a slightly damning indictment of how I think the inability to get goals from some of those mm. big signings. Yeah, I think they overspent in quite a few key areas. Yeah, and Atta- attack in particular. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, there's been rumours about Nathan Ake going to Manchester City for 35 million, which will obviously help. I'm not sure if that actually massively improves Manchester City. It does in terms of numbers and depth, but in terms of starting 11, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but obviously Villa got a point at West Ham, which meant they stayed up. And we had a question about Villa because Villa spent a lot of money last season as well. And there was a question we had about Jack Grealish from Andrew Travers, who said, there's an assumption Jack Grealish goes to a top six club, but which club actually buys him in the end? I don't think there's a top six club that can accommodate Grealish. My gut would have said Leicester, but then they've got James Madison. They're very similar in profile as well, aren't they? Very similar in profile, style, and Leicester, like against United, I know they lost 2-0, we'll come to that in a bit. They lost 2-0 uh, in the kind of Champions League playoff, as, and the, as it turned out to be. But Grealish and Madison, just they occupy the same spaces, do the same things. And Madison does them so well, I don't see why you'd want a stand-in for someone like that. And I think Grealish, needs, he's at a point where he deserves to be starting. Um, can I say this about Grealish? So we'll answer the question again properly, but Grealish, I've never seen someone who looks more like a footballer than Jack Grealish. As in, if he walked down a street anywhere, I'd be like, what does he do for a living? That guy is absolutely a footballer. I even have a theory that Grealish got those shorts specially designed so he could wear them and everyone else is like, actually, yeah, we quite like these, but the idea came from him. He looked so at home in that kit. My guy is enjoying himself. He always has that look of, I've just got back from holiday. Yes. 
Who, who would you see him play with? The James Madison thing is interesting because if that wasn't an issue, he's got Leicester written all over him. He does, he does, yeah. But I just don't think Leicester would pay that money. I could see him landing at Spurs, actually, because it just seems like such a Spurs signing, Jack Grealish. And someone who I probably imagine Mourinho will end up falling in love with as a player. Yeah, that's you know, He'll true. have his Matarazzi moment when he walks out of Spurs with Grealish. How about Grealish and Madison at Leicester and just play them both as eights? Not everyone can play as an eight, Musa. <laughs> I got it in. I sneaked in. <laughs> it's just so normalised. I've become so normalised to it now that it's just, I don't even hear it. It's the normalisation. The normalisation of the discourse. <laughs> like a dripping tap after weeks. You stop noticing it. <laughs> you stop. <laughs> Actually, shout out to, do you know what? The balance of Leicester's midfield was really beautiful the other day. Like Against Manchester United? Yeah, it was like, I love that. And Didi, Tielemans, Chowdhury, all Brighton. Like, I'm loving that. That's a great- It's a lovely like, midfield, that actually. It's really nice. Like, it's just such a well-coached team, Leicester. I just, you know, when you look at teams, you're like, I love what you're doing there. I love your work. Yeah, I still can't, it's still got the Brendan Rodgers feel like I'm being sold something. Yeah, yeah, true, true, true. Brendan Rodgers after the game, obviously Manchester United won, therefore secured third place. We'll talk about Manchester United shortly, but I think Brendan Rodgers is, he's someone who divides opinion so much that again, I'm just going to come with a really lukewarm take on it. And I think at the beginning of the season, if you'd said they would have finished fifth, they would have taken that. As he stressed after the game, it was their second highest ever Premier League finish behind the title win. And Liverpool and Manchester City were always in a league of two at the top of the table. I don't think anyone at the beginning of the season thought that one of those two wouldn't win the league. Below that, there isn't the standard top six anymore, really, because you've got that top six and then you've had Leicester and Wolves and Sheffield United go into that this season. Unexpectedly, I must admit, but still, you've got maybe seven teams that could have... Well, actually, that's pretty generous because I'm including Arsenal in that and I probably shouldn't, but you've got maybe six teams who could really stake a claim for those two final Champions League spots. And Rodgers deserves a lot of credit. They can solidify as a top six club and build on that with someone like Rodgers there. I think for him, it's a really good gig as well because it's removed from such that historic pressure of being at somewhere like Liverpool, which I think that kind of job just, even though I think he did quite a good job at Liverpool, I think that just came too soon for him. Right. Um, I think Leicester is a really good place for him to be. I think the club seem like they're in a really balanced, stable state at the moment. Some good young players coming through. If they can keep hold of key players like Chilwell, or if they do flip them, flip them for mega money and reinvest quite smartly, which is something they've done. Yeah, I, th I think the fact that they're even in that part of the table still is massive credit to the, to the club. But let's move on to Manchester United before we go for a break. Yeah, We had a few questions about Manchester United. There's one from Cheeky Ball Boys on Twitter. Is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer now responsible for the two greatest comebacks in modern club history? I assume that's Manchester United modern club history. <laughs> I mean, the first great comeback, obviously, is probably the greatest club comeback of all time. The second one, as a manager, so as a player, obviously, with the, the treble over Bayern, as a manager, is the most impressive managerial feat of the last, well, since Ferguson. It is, it is, just is, because, you know, Mourinho came second, and with all respect to Mourinho and what he was working with, Solskjaer entered this with greater turbulence. And also, frankly, a lot of us doubted him. I certainly did. I didn't think he was going to pull this around. There were some early results which showed 
he might have the chops. Well, I think they beat Spurs away 1-0 with a winner from Martial, a beautiful link-up, and they were playing Lingard as a false nine. And he kept trying to get a tune out of Lingard and couldn't. And the first goal he got out of Lingard this season, the first goal or assist Lingard scored was an injury time this season. That tells you a lot because there were a lot of people putting money on Lingard not getting a goal or assist this season, which is how far Lingard's form fell off a cliff. So Solskjaer had to deal with quite a few things. The sale of Lukaku, which he wanted because he saw a different forward line. He envisaged something different for United. Bring in Greenwood, adapting Rashford's role. Seb Staffordblaw wrote a brilliant piece for the, um, I think maybe 442 or Football 365 on the adaptation. I think it was 365 on the adaptation of um, Rashford's role. So all these things, all these moving parts that Solskjaer had to get right and also did not have a creative midfielder of the quality of Bruno Fernandes. Fernandes came in and then transformed United's season, almost alarmingly so. The only caveat over Fernandes' brilliance being that there's an over-dependence there. So that's an issue that has to be sorted out creatively. But Solskjaer, and it has to be said, Solskjaer deserves immense credit for this outcome. To come third in the Premier League with Manchester United is an excellent achievement at this point in his coaching trajectory. Um, and he has really impressed and surprised me with how he has dealt with these challenges. He really has. I mean, we had another question from Kevin Lay who said, has, have Manchester United finally turned the corner or is this another false dawn? Uh, false dawn? And I'd say that, I think we touched on it before, but how we thought that Manchester United really benefited, not more so than others, because it's hard to uh, quantify that. But I really feel that they benefited hugely from the break because all of the noise went away it allowed Paul Pogba to get fully fit for the first time in what, probably about a year or so. Right. And it allowed Bruno Fernandes to have essentially a preseason. Arriving in January and taking that much of the creative responsibility at any club, but especially a club of the size of Manchester United, is super difficult. Yes. And especially when your transfer fee could go up to almost 70 million pounds. Right. You know, he was no steal. No. I think he was a really good signing. Top three Premier League signings of the season, I'd say, because of the transformative effect that he has had on that squad and that side. And he really acted as a catalyst to propel them into the top three. I think the thing around Solskjaer is, I think Solskjaer is a really, really good coach. I think he's been hard to gauge and hard to judge because the track record isn't unbelievable. I think there are two things here. I think he deserves a lot of credit. I think he could potentially develop into an elite level coach. This is where I'm going to kind of sound a little bit mean here and I don't mean it to, but I still don't think he's absolutely in that top tier of coaches yet, despite achieving what he's achieved with Manchester United this season, because I think it's a process. You're not just born an elite coach or not. You need time to develop it. And there are a lot more things going on his resume now that could lead to him becoming regarded as one of the elite level coaches. It could happen. I think now. It's, how do I phrase this? I want to phrase this in a really specific way. I think Manchester United as a football club don't deserve credit for finishing third, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the players deserve a lot of credit for finishing third. That makes perfect sense. That's how I'd frame it. Because I think that Manchester United have wasted so many resources over the last few years. Yes. The amount of money that they have spent or the amount of resources that they've had at their disposal, third should be a disappointment. 
And I think this is the tricky thing that's framed a lot of judgment around Manchester United as a whole is that they swung from being this huge, huge powerhouse to somehow being these kind of plucky underdogs because they were struggling. And it's like, no, actually, they are still a powerhouse. They are still one of the biggest football clubs in the world with one of the, the proudest histories in the world. And I think that, yes, the club deserves some credit for hiring Solskjaer ultimately. And I think, yes, they deserve some credit for signing Bruno Fernandes. But a signing like Bruno Fernandes, not for the money, but I think in terms of getting a signing right with the resources that Manchester United have, should be the norm. I completely agree with all of that. That's completely right. And the one challenge Solskjaer now has, I think, is to play when the game is slower. To dominate at a slower tempo is now the thing because that team, its transition, its counterattack is light speed. You can argue, you know, when they're, when they're a broken team, when, when, the te- when the field is broken, you see the counter against the Crystal Palace, the Martial's goal. That is one of the best counterattack goals you will see mm. anywhere all season. Mm-hmm. It's astonishing. You've got three players that could be primary ball carriers, Rashford, Martial and Fernandez combining. And that is unstoppable. The challenge now is to score goals when a team is lying deep. I think in that truly elite final enclosure of managers who can construct complex attacking systems when a team is sitting deep against you. I say we put Pochettino, Guardiola, Klopp, and we have to put Zidane in there because Zidane has done what Zidane has done. I would actually put Flick in there now. I think Flick is now good enough against deep lying defences. And he proved it this season. Yeah, to break them down. Yeah, I think you just basically got like um, Tuchel. You, you've got like six or seven coaches in the world who are good enough to make defences disintegrate even when they've got eight players behind the ball. And that is the final level that Solskjaer has to crack consistently now. It's the one thing I think he has to do because you saw, you know, and this is not a criticism of him. It's basically saying it's a compliment that now his competence as a coach has advanced him to the point where we're saying, you're a very good coach. And I, I, I thought he was a good coach when he was first appointed. Yeah. The parallel that I would say is like, I produced the Stadio podcast. I'm doing all right. But if then someone plucked me and chucked me as like head of audio at the BBC, I wouldn't nail it straight away because you're dealing with a completely different game just and a completely different organisation. What I would say is that I think that the concerns around Solskjaer have been completely valid. They aren't anything to do with him necessarily on a personal level. I think it's a confusing process that a club like Man- of Manchester United's stature has gone through that you're seeing Arsenal on a smaller scale go through as well. And to some degree, Chelsea. And you have a fan favourite that comes in with a strong nostalgic aura. You know, the guy who is responsible for one of the greatest moments in the club's history as a player. Yet the, the CV of the management doesn't tie up with what a CV of a Manchester United manager should look like in the present day. Because we all know where Alex Ferguson came from etc etc but it's different now I'm really pleased for him because I think he's navigated the whole last 18 months now stepping out of it I think he's navigated it in a really good way I think he's done really well I think he's calmed the storm a little bit at Manchester United and it needed to be calmed because it was in danger of running away to a point where it wasn't salvageable yeah not literally but I think Manchester United's stock had started to fall to a point that it could have ended up being terminal. Major signings joined and failed and left. The turnover of managers and the inability to attract players of the calibre that Manchester United should be signing was also another worry. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Because you know how things are on Twitter. People are just like, Solskjaer's the go or Solskjaer's a fraud or whatever. 
and it's neither. I think that he's done amazingly well. I think this is the next stop on the journey for Manchester United to eventually return to where they need to be. Right. And, and I think now, personally, that he has absolutely earned the right to kind of be the guy who progresses it on. And if he fails next season, then call it. I mean, there haven't really been any noises recently, but I, just, I think they, there's no way they're replacing him in the summer. I don't think. No, no, I don't think so. Not a single chance. Yeah, absolutely. I just think there's, there are some United now, the options they have, not only the Champions League football, but the restoration of the, an element of, I wouldn't say the aura because the aura is not back yet. And that was squandered, I think. But they're quite an exciting proposition now. And the youth of that forward line, I mean, that's the highest scoring front three I think in league in European league history or something wild like that. Right. That collection of three young players have scored the most goals of that age. I mean, niche that, but... Rashford, Greenwood, Martial, that is... But that's a really, really hype front three. Yeah, that's a front three whose peak is not in sight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's take a break. We'll come back and talk about Chelsea and some other stuff in the Premier League before we move on. Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, we're back from the break. Uh, let's talk Chelsea because Chelsea finished fourth and I think caps off pretty impressive season for Frank Lampard with the Champions League still to go and the FA Cup final. A great season. What a season for Lampard. You could see actually there was them. Um, he was talking to, he did an interview at the end of the game, the Chelsea Wolves game with uh, his cousin, which showed you a lot about, you know, football royalty, but also... The, the look on Lampard's face, he was trying really, really, really hard not to look absolutely ecstatic. And he was mm. clearly delighted because he came into the season again with all these challenges, uh, transfer embargo, couldn't bring players in. And his primary job really was, look, just restore Chelsea to the style that the fans love seeing. Because, you know, Sarri won a Europa League, that wasn't enough to save him. So Chelsea had other considerations this year. They, they went beyond the league position, they were aesthetic. And he achieved both. He made them attractive sign to watch and he got them top four in his first season. That's an excellent, that's an outstanding achievement, actually. That's an outstanding achievement. And he also, in the process, introduced players like Tammy Abraham and Mason Mount, who... Rhys James are, as well. So. Rhys James too, who they're all good bet to be bona fide starters next year. They've all thrown themselves in the mix to be starters, even with the arrival of people like Timo Werner, possibly Kai Havertz and Ziyech. So Lampard just did a very good job, you know, and his issues, obviously they've talked about defence, but I think this is the thing. As teething problems, they're the ones you'd want. Like if you look at the things that Chelsea have to address, you would like to be in Lampard's position. Mm. Chelsea, when they're fluid, are as attractive as any team. With another full season, 
working with those players. Chelsea are just like a legit top four team. They have to, at this point, underperform to fall out of the top four, I think. If, if, if Lampard does the job, if he does the right work, just with this current squad and his current quality, it would be a disappointment, I think, for them if they fell to like even sixth place next year. I think much like Solskjaer, I think he's navigated the season really well. Yes. Because I think there were, you know, he was faced with some real problems in with the transfer ban. Yep, yep. And you saw them shift to this other identity of playing a lot of academy graduates and young Chelsea players. And he was kind of, he wasn't criticised, but remember earlier on in the season when Pulisic had been brought in and wasn't starting games and wasn't featuring that regularly. There was a little bit of noise about this, like whether he was unhappy, whether Lampard wanted him. And actually, I think in hindsight, Lampard has managed that situation really well. And we've said this a number of times that when young players move, that's a big life change. Yeah. To go to Dortmund anyway is a huge culture shock. And then to come out of a town like Dortmund, which let's just say is not London, and to play for Chelsea, you know, Borussia Dortmund are a huge football club, but there is a different level of visibility and expectation there. And I think that Lampard and Pulisic both deserve a load of credit for how they've handled their respective seasons this year. And I think that with then the announcement that the transfer ban was overturned and the, the kind of wave of signings and rumours that were coming out, again, I think he's navigated that really well. Like we've mentioned before about the Harvest thing, if Harvitz goes, he goes. He'd be a great signing for anyone. I still think he would probably be better maybe going somewhere else, personally. Um, if I was a Chelsea fan, I'd just want to buy everyone, obviously. Yeah, you would. But, but I think if Chelsea can really, I mean, the goalkeeper, like we mentioned last week, the goalkeeper situation is a problematic one. And I think they need some tweaks in defence. I think they need a left back and I think they need another centre back. If they can address the keeper, two defensive positions and maybe another midfield position, they will be a massive problem next season. Right. Because, because of the variety that they will have. And I'd be really interested to see what happens with Giroud and Tammy Abraham because Timo Werner's not a lone striker. This is something that actually is a potential problem for Lampard. So it's a really good problem to have. But how he figures it out might be quite interesting because I don't think you can just play Werner as a number nine. No. I don't think it's, it's not his best position. And no. I don't think that he has the physical size, if you like, to be really imposing as a number nine. Whereas you have Abraham and Giroud, who are brilliant link-up players, offer very different skill sets. Obviously, Abraham is much younger, much more dynamic and mobile. Giroud is really good against low blocks. One of those two with Werner off them is probably the optimal, the optimal There's thing with, with, piece, with kind yeah. of movers and runners around them. I think, I think, and that's, that is, yeah. this is the thing that I think because Chelsea were leaking goals from the start. Right. There was that, like they lost 4-0 in the, what, the first game of the season at United, right. didn't they? Yep. Yep. That was a weird game though. It was a weird game because Chelsea weren't 4-0 bad. No, no, they weren't. Yeah. It was one of those ones where it's like, weirdly, it's a really good thrashing. I think Lampard benefited from that thrashing because it allowed him to get on with it. It immediately lowered the expectations. Everyone was like, okay, transitional year, confirmed, yeah. transitional year. And then by the end, you're bringing two players like Billy Gilmore. Mm. And you know, what's so exciting, I think Chelsea will really benefit from the five subs more than any other team, I think, will benefit, apart from maybe City. I thought Liverpool were, you said Liverpool were probably the side. You know what, this is the funny thing. Liverpool is such a well-oiled machine that you forget about them. You're right, mm. I forget about them. Yeah, but Liverpool... City and Chelsea, I think, will benefit most from the five subs rule. 
Well, I mean, if Chelsea keeps stacking up on attackers, then yeah, definitely. I mean, the oh thing is goodness. that no one conceded more goals than them in the top half of the table by a distance, actually. I mean, well, Burnley 10th conceded four goals less than Chelsea did. This is interesting now with Chelsea because remember how Liverpool under Brennan Rodgers conceded 50 goals, which is a huge amount of goals to concede if you're going for yeah. the title. Scored 101, conceded 50 in 38 matches. And you add a player like Van Dijk there and it just like solves a thousand problems. I wonder if there's a player on the, a, a defender on the market who fits the profile that Chelsea know about that we don't. He's not a high profile player, but basically will slot in and just sort out that gap and plug that gap. Well, there's interesting developments in Germany because Upa Meccano, Dio Upa Meccano signed a new contract with RB Leipzig, which is the kind of thing that Werner did last year, which meant that he won't go on a free next season, which means that they could sell him this summer for a heightened transfer fee. Mm. Wouldn't be surprising. That'd be a good move, actually. That'd be a good move for, for Chelsea. I think he would, he's the profile of player that could fill a lot of gaps very quickly. I mean, let's say Manchester United conceded 18 less goals than Chelsea did this season. If Chelsea could score the same amount of goals and maybe concede 20 goals less, then they're in real contention. Yeah, it's possible to make that change for Chelsea. If we look at the shift that Nagelsmann made, where he really just boosted Leipzig's firepower, it's possible to shift the balance of your team. But yeah, a couple of big signings will do it for them. But yeah, mm. let's, let's um, skip on. So Liverpool and Manchester City both won last game of the season, um, kind of as you'd expect. David Silva's last Premier League game for Manchester City. What's a bit scary about City is how quickly they came back after the restart. Yeah, I mean, they were top of the table since the restart. So. Yeah, and they, they put four goals on Liverpool they put four on Watford and five on Norwich. And you'd expect them to have the last two results, but generally their, their resurgence, they're angry and they're going for that Champions League. They really are, right? That's yeah. been so spiky yeah. since the restart. They're angry. Like, and De Bruyne's goal, De Bruyne's first, we scored two beauties against Norwich. His first one, the footwork before oh, he yeah. burns in the top court, he bamboozled. It's like, like a crossover. It was so nice. It was pure just like button bashing on FIFA. And you, you do something really amazing. Every time I see De Bruyne, like at his peak, he does something new, like something I've not seen before. Mm. Or, or see, no, sorry, more accurately, something I've not seen him do before. It's almost like he's been working on new stuff or whatever. I don't know what it is. But City now, having Madrid in the Champions League, with that being a straight shootout, if it's going to be about firepower, I mean, of course it's crucial. The return of Aguero is crucial really for them. But they look angry and very dangerous. They do. They do. I, I personally think Kevin De Bruyne would be my shout for player of the year, I think. Which sounds wild considering the season that Liverpool have had. If I was going to say someone from Liverpool, it would probably be Van Dijk. I think there was, maybe this will move on to this, the Jordan Henderson thing, because I think it was Friday, Henderson was announced as the Football Writers Player of the Year. If I'm being honest, I don't hate that choice. I found the chat about it online a little bit weird in a way because A, it's the Football Writers Award. So the football writers vote for it in, in England. Mm. You know, English football writers on the whole love a narrative, especially yeah. around uh, a European World Club Cup Premier League winning English captain who is definitely in the kind of... Well, actually, I actually tweeted about it saying that's the... It's officially the end of the Jordan Henderson is underrated conversation, you know. Sad yeah, day. it's true. Yeah, it's he's done. not rated. Yeah. Because he's, it's, he's been like this for ages. And I think, 
I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually picks up the Players' Player of the Year award either because of the way that players vote. But I also think that someone like Kevin De Bruyne is in for a massive shout that. I think, again, like I'm a real fence-sitter on stuff like this because I don't necessarily agree with him being the Player of the Year, but I can totally understand why he's got the votes. And I found the pushback on it quite interesting. And I actually tweeted a thing saying the thing that I found interesting was the pushback suggests or kind of says quite a lot about English football's relationship with glue guys. I think the Football Writers Award, the stipulations for voting, it's not purely on performance. I think the noises that have come out from every single player in the football club, as well as Jurgen Klopp, about how important he is, completely validates him as a choice. Yeah. Let's get real. Jordan Henderson isn't the best player in the Premier League. No. He may not have been purely on performances the best player this season. But if you combine performances and intangibles, there's totally a case there yeah. for it, I, th- I think. Does that sound too wishy-washy? Well, or- no, because look at N'Golo Kante. Mm. Look at N'Golo Kante. N'Golo Kante, integral for Leicester, integral for Chelsea. And in previous years, a guy like Mares would have won those, or Vardy. Mm. But they were like, no, we're going to go with Kante because Kante, well, arguably got a year late, actually. That's a funny thing. So yeah. sometimes it's a corrective thing where people look at it and go, well, Giggs was like that. Giggs got that award one year and Giggs only scored one goal in that calendar year, I think. But there was a sense that Giggs, he got it for the longevity, I think. Mm. And so, look, it's really weird when you see an award, which is subjective anyway, being argued over so much. It's like proving its lack of value, actually. Like there's a golden boot for someone that scores the most. And there's a golden glove or whatever in some leagues for those who keep the most clean sheets. But this isn't the thing I lose sleep over. Maybe I'm just getting, maybe it's partly because I'm getting older. So I just see a different perspective. And I'm just like, I'm exhausted with it. But Henderson, I think I might say the last podcast, but basically Henderson is to Steven Gerrard as Michael Carrick was to Roy Keane. Mm. They came into these jobs. They had to fill this midfield with an impossible job. Roy Keane and, Steven Gerrard was so dominant that actually you could argue they played two positions. Um, and both Carrick and Henderson came in and quietly got on with it. Mm. Quietly got on with it. And Henderson's case in particular, the criticism he took, he was dropped as a club captain for huge games. He was in and out of the team. He really went through it and he just never really complained. Mm. And you could argue, oh, well, well, it's easy for someone like that to kind of believe the kind of office politician not speak up and be the kind of good boy no like Henderson was there for the bleakest part of it yeah I'm not going to name names but you know he was in a pretty poor lineup when he first arrived at at that club and he's been through what nine ten seasons of it Mm. all of it he's seen it all like that is you know here's the thing the greatest award that Henderson has is that Henderson got to witness the rebirth of Liverpool up close. He was there for every single minute of it, like award or not, Jordan Henderson had a front row seat for one of the most exciting periods in any big club's modern history. Any mm. of them, any of them. It's like being there. I'm, I'm always really intrigued by players who play all of the games, like Rafael Varane at Madrid. I would love to sit down with Varane and just be like, this journey you've been on mm. with Madrid and with France, you've seen it all. You've won like what, four Champions Leagues? you've won these two league titles at Madrid and you just came in quietly and did your thing. Like, uh, Yeah, I mean, I just think I can totally see why they awarded it to him. Mm. And I don't, I'm not mad at it. Like, I'm not you. Exactly, that's I'm, the, that's the phrase. Not, I, I ain't mad at it. I'm not, I'm not. It's good. 
I'm not job. necessarily sure he would have got my vote if I'd been given a vote, but I'm not mad at the outcome. Quickly, we had a question from Neve Dunphy, just going back to David Silva. Neve sends in really good questions every week, actually. She said, once he leaves Manchester City at the end of the season, would you like to see David Silva move to Al Sadd so we can see him and Santi Cazorla playing together? I wouldn't like to see anyone move to Al Sadd, if I'm honest. I know, I know, me too. Um, I was really disappointed that Santi's going there. I was doing a bit of research on this because I was fascinated by the amount of caps that Cazorla won for Spain mm. and Villa for Spain as well. They both had incredible careers for Spain. Like, I look at it from a perspective of, oh, what a shame they didn't contribute more. Cazorla only missed out on the World Cup 2010 because of a hernia. Mm. Um, but in the 08 final, Cazorla comes on for Villa, Dav- uh, for David Silva in the second half. Like, they were integral to that. Mm. Um, Silva only plays two matches in 2010 World Cup, but is back and features and everything for 2012. It was like Cazorla and Silva have been in tandem. I mean, I was thinking about this, that, that, that 2010 World Cup Spain squad, or that sort of 08 to 012 to 12, that's the greatest, greatest squad of all time. And looking at Cazorla, and part of me doesn't want them to play together only because, well, it would mean playing Al Sad. But if they were in Japan, for example, Cazorla, Silver would be beautiful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh. I think they might need a defensive midfielder there though. Yeah, true. The WhatsApp, then again, who get the ball There you off go. You've got, your, you've got your dream Ante, of three eights. Anti would play it. But your dream of three eights. I would have loved to have seen them both move to Spain. Well, stay in Spain. I'd, I'd, I'd love to have seen, well, I mean, David Silva hasn't announced where he's going yet, but I would, I would like to see him go to, okay, so I have two. Either go back to Valencia for a couple of seasons or my preferred choice is to see him go back to Abar. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Because also, also, you know, that's a great fit for them. Yeah. That's and I a think great that fit for Abar. you can live down the road, beautiful part of Spain, live anywhere around there. It's beautiful. That is an amazing, amazing shout, Abar. I just think from a romantic edge, that would just be so lovely to see him go to somewhere like Abar. Yes, it's romantic and it's a great fit. Before we move on from the Premier League, because we've done a long Premier League bit today, shout out to Leighton Baines, who retired from football. We had a question from Alex McCready. He said, what do you think Leighton Baines' legacy in the Premier League is? Was he truly one of the best left-backs in England over the past decade, or am I looking at him with blue-coloured glasses? I think both. I think blue-coloured glasses, because he's one of your own, you're proud of him, but also he legitimately was he was was yeah he was just really 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 good I think he's been one of the most consistent Premier League left backs of the last decade for sure yes, I think yes. he's definitely been one of the best English left backs of the last decade again just one of those dudes who's just like solid and I even, really like even, these like solid football players even now retiring at 35 is a solid age it's just like don't drop a league don't go and play like he could have Leighton Baines would have been offered he would have got offers from the championship Mm. He would have got offered from other places if they'd known. Actually, that's not true. If they'd known that he was thinking of retiring or thinking of moving on. So assuming they know that his contract was ending, I assume that sharper minds looking at the contract situation would have been like, let's drop an email to his management. His management, he's not in a band yet. Yeah, but you know how it is. Like his agent, I'm, I'm sure he would have got like one or two offers, but he would have just been like, nah, I'm good. He's definitely going to start a band. Yeah, no. I hope he enjoys retirement. You know, he's just been such a solid player for so long. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take another quick break and then we'll come back with the rest of the stuff. 
All right, back from the break, final part of the show. We're going to talk about the NWSL Challenge Cup, which was won by the Houston Dash. I said it like an American then, Houston. Houston, Texas. You said it like you're talking about a film star. Houston. I sound like Mike, Mike Breen. Can I say about the Houston Dash, actually, this actually, this tournament gave me, it, it was perfectly, for, it, was, it, was, it was a perfectly formed tournament, wasn't it, actually? I loved it. I'm not going to lie. Great. I found it, it great. really, really enjoyable. Yeah. You know, I love about it. I love how wrong about it I was in terms of where I thought the winners would come from. You know, I was looking at it. I, my mistake was looking at it like a kind of regular tournament, which would not reflect the chaos of the surrounding society. But it did. Like, you look at that opening game, you're like, oh, the courage are taking this. The courage looks so good. What, one played for one four, scored seven, conceded one. Yep, the courage are going to be in the final one of the team. But no. Yeah, but then the courage go out and you're like, oh, well, this is Washington Spirit's time. Then they go out. I mean, yeah. not having a fully fit Rose Lavelle really, really hindered them. You know, she, she missed a couple of games and then I think came on in the last, in their final game, but wasn't fully fit. But yeah, first time Houston got to a knockout stage of the NWSL, took home the first trophy in their history. And actually, shout out to Shay Groom, who I think emerges as the player of the tournament. Oh, her goal was, was so good. You don't really see that anymore that much, do you? That kind of goal. Which knocked it around the, what, in the final. Yeah, knocking it around the keeper. Well, that form of then, finishing is so calm. That form mm. of like finish is so... That is the kind of... And it's funny because she scored lots of... She scored, I think, three goals in the tournament and they were all different. I think mm. she scored a free kick and she basically did different things. And, but it wasn't just that. It was the way that she ran midfield. Yeah. And it was it was so fitting. I think Daly created the the move when Mewis went through on goal. I think it was Daly's flick that put her through, and I think Daly had the assist for Groom's goal. It was really fitting that those two were at the, were together at the end because they had been the outstanding players yeah. in, in the tournament. Really, they, they they'd been the best. I wonder. Not that it's all about transfer moves. I wonder if Daly's form, in particular, in this tournament, has made European clubs look with a bit of interest because she ran things as a nine, but also as a 10. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, Rachel Daly, what she ended the, uh, ended the tournament as the, I think the top goal scorer and the joint top assist maker. Well, joint top goal scorer and the joint top assist maker. So she basically was the only person that had, that came top for assist and goals. It was funny because the challenge on that brought Mewis down after a couple of minutes of the final was, it was weird. It was a tired challenge, even though they've been playing for like three minutes. And the only reason I think the challenge was made is because I watched it again, trying to work out why that foul had been made. And I think it's because when you're cutting through on goal and you're right-footed, mm. you normally hit the, book on your, the ball on your right foot, but she didn't. She took it with her left. Yeah. And the angle of her run was so deceptive that the defender got bamboozled. I mean, they kind of came out flying though at the beginning they of did, the game. They, they did, they did, they did. And they caught them. They were a step too quick all over the mm. pitch. And um, I mean, Mios went off after 29 minutes, but that's interesting because their depth was so good. Mm. They could adapt. And I think, weird enough, because Houston, you know, I think Ertz was playing from the back and it was really great to see her coming out from the back. I think she started the tournament in as an eight. You know, I, you know, I think about number eight. Really? She, never. She, yeah, never. I, actually, I've got to think about You did quite well holding that down. I never mentioned that. My thing was no, like, oh, no, oh, no. God, oh, God. Hey, anyway. Your, your, over, you're, you're basically like a overlord who's trying to convert the whole world, not to an empire, but just to, the whole world to a number eight. The cult of eight. People wake up chanting it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so Ertz was playing from the back and I think when she, there was a period from sort of like halfway through the first half onwards when she 
really, I think, took control. There was a kind of, the game went through a couple of different phases where it looked like Chicago were assigned to assert themselves mm. up until the half. But then after the half, Houston kind of came out and played quite a gutsy game, like not a containment game, but actually forcing the issue. Mm. Um, so weirdly, by the time they won, I mean, they scored on the counter, but I didn't feel that like they'd been, I, I thought they were like, maybe score and only go and just soak it up. They didn't, they kept playing football. And yeah. Does that make sense? In the, in the end, they were good value for that win. I, w- I ended up thinking, it's a good argument that those were probably, maybe it's a bit revisionist, but maybe the two best teams by the end of the tournament, apart from the courage. Like you could argue like, if you look at the head-to-heads as well, by the end of the tournament, they'd found that form. You know, like winning a tournament's about momentum. It's one of those tournaments though, that I think when you have such a small number of games, it's like any tournament, you have less wiggle room. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, you see with like World Cups and stuff like that, mm. the number of times that people who end up winning the World Cup start really poorly. Yeah. It's such a cliche, but it is such a game by game thing that, and also so much of how you can, how, so much of how you might have to manage the tournament can shift thanks to stuff outside of your control. Yeah. Like for example, as soon as the courage went out, the whole tournament got blown open and everyone thought that the spirit were going to be it. And then the spirit go out and then you have all of these teams who have kind of started quite patchily or been blown away by the, by the courage or someone else. They start to think, oh shit, well actually, yeah, we may not need to even face some of the people who might knock us out because of the way that the, they only played a certain amount of games before yeah. going to the playoff stages or the knockout stages, sorry. And I think you saw that in the final that it was kind of like two teams that were pretty evenly matched. I mean, to be honest, I know you said that like the dash were kind of good value for the win, but I also think that it would have been hard to grumble if Chicago had come away with it as well. It was that finely balanced. Like possession was super balanced. I think they had similar amount of shots. So it was really, really finely balanced. And that's always the way with games like that. When you see someone take an early side, especially in finals, when you see a side take an early lead and it's usually super balanced and then they just get the side that's chasing the game gets sucker punched right at the end on a counter. And it was just, it was the perfect formula like that. Early goal, try and manage the game as much as possible. and then on the counter at the end. And it was, it was just amazing. I mean, first trophies for any side or club or franchise is an amazing thing. Yeah. And um, I'm just glad we got to see Rachel Daly with those two beers and the medal around her neck in her lead shirt because <laughs> and they, it's quite a good week. It's quite a good week for her. And they were drinking out of the challenge cup as well. They were drinking out of the trophy. <laughs> Absolute baller. Um, we had a question from Siron119 on Twitter he said, which of the NWSL Challenge Cup accounts are you going to miss the most when the tournament is over? I'm going to miss the farm. <laughs> no, actually, no, I'm not. I'm going to miss the, the glare, the camera glare. That's, my, <laughs> that's the one I'm going to miss the worst. <laughs> Obviously, the playground was the most popular choice, but the camera glare one was the one that kind of really made me laugh more than any of the other ones. <laughs> when, a, when a tournament is generating its own fun accounts, that's yeah. a sign of a cult status. It's going to be missed. It's a yeah. cult status going to be missed but I really like that tournament format and again like we said with the Premier League before and we said with the Bundesliga before that and La Liga especially with regards to the NWSL I think they deserve all the credit in the world for how they handle the tournament obviously it had some teething problems with Orlando dropping out at the last minute you know they were the first professional sports league to return in the United States and they handled it brilliantly um, so yeah, fair play. And no, again, no positive tests through the tournament, stuff like that. All's well that ends well. Yeah. And congrats to the Houston Dash. Exactly. Huge result for Houston. <laughs> All right. Let's 
wrap up with Juventus winning their ninth straight Scudetto. Okay, so actually, let me say, first of all, congratulations to Sari, because I think Nicky Bandini said on Twitter, Sari was working in a bank until his 40s. Mm-hmm. And in his 60s, he wins Serie A. And she said, look, for all those people criticizing Sari and not winning the league in the right style, he showed you the blueprint. He showed you what you have to do. Why are you out there doing it? And, you know, that is actually, for me, the story of, of Sari's victory is incredible. Like his, if you look at all the clubs he coached, I mean, Sari is that guy who, he's like a singer-songwriter that played every single pub on the circuit before they got big. He finally made it. And there was like, what? wow. That, and he was always the best guy on the lineup. He's the sugar man really, isn't he? In a way, if you look at his career rise, it's that, it's that unlikely. And it may not be done again in this era where budgets are so as of increasingly rarely given to people who are not either, you know, coaching, coaching badges out the door or like, or footballing legends. For mm. Sari to do what he did, a triumph of method. And it's funny because this is arguably the least Sari style of all his teams. The Juventus squad really has felt like a patchwork held together in no small part by, you know, the goal scoring of Cristiano Ronaldo, who I think ended up, he's, you know, he's, he's got two more games to go and is on 31 at the moment. Um, mm. You know, so his goal scoring has been extraordinary, but also... Quite a lot. I think almost half of those are penalties, right? Which obviously isn't, I mean, it's yeah, yeah, still got course. to put them away. I mean, he missed one on the weekend. But, but that says a lot about the fluidity of Ventus' attack or the lack of it. Like, mm. this has been a really funny season where most of the top teams have played with an element of restraint. It's funny. If you could characterise the top European leagues, there's been an unprecedented amount of turbulence. And the teams that have won have not been the teams that have blown teams away. Like, I think I said mm. this last week, but top scorer... Um, Atlanta, the third now, but they were second for just a couple of weeks. It was really striking how the second place teams in England, Spain, and um, Italy had significantly more goals than the team in first position. It tells a certain story about the focus upon grinding out results, Mm. getting difficult results, and saying, this might look ugly, but we're going to do this a certain way. And there were times when Sarri had to make it look ugly because you had beautiful teams chasing you. So yeah, I suppose just a credit really to the resilience of Juventus. I know they've got the resources and that's, that is obviously a, we can't dispute that or deny that. Ultimately at the same time, they found a way to extract difficult results. I mean, they were looking ropey early on in the season. Very ropey. And I think the thing that they deserve the most credit for, I think is just kind of responding to the new challenge of having probably multiple teams in the top five that were looking good at various points in the season. But if you think about it, Lazio, Chiro Mobile is three, three goals ahead of Cristiano Ronaldo in the golden boot race for two to go. Inter a second looked for a long, long time that they were going to mount a real title challenge. They've scored more goals and conceded less than Juve have this season. Mm. Atalanta are obviously only a point behind Inter in third after they drew with Milan on Friday which was a great game, I thought. And their level on points with Lazio, you know, Roma are fifth. Napoli are down to seventh at the moment. There is a huge turnover in those top six, seven in Serie A. 
I, th- I think obviously it would have cost him his job. And I, to be honest, I think, unfortunately, it might still cost him his job, sorry, even though he's won the league, Yeah, depending on who's available. But overcoming a different challenge that a number of previous Juventus managers haven't really faced, I think was was good for him, especially because he was someone who I don't think ever really, he didn't ever feel like a massively popular appointment at Juve. People were kind of done with him at Chelsea as well after just one season. I feel with him kind of like I feel with Valverde. Like I feel, I really feel for a manager when they get a job, which is basically a dream job. And the response to their appointment is people are underwhelmed. I really, really feel for them. Mm. A bit like I felt for Lopetegui. I know the way that Lopetegui left and went to Real was not perfect and kind of was not ideal for, from Spain's perspective. But I also felt for Lopetegui because there's that thing of like, will they come around for me again? I'm just sympathetic to anyone that takes a job of that scale and that size and isn't isn't welcomed because it's a brave thing to do that. It's brave to take on an enterprise like that mm. and make something happen with it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of Serie A now, just the position of the rest of the top four is up for grabs. Obviously a point separating those next three. And the Europa League spots, Roma, Milan and Napoli fighting for those two Europa League spots. So I think they, that wraps next weekend, Serie A. So that'll be another league done. My goodness, we're chalking them off. Ooh, it's been a hell of a Hell of a season. It has indeed. To be honest, this has been a hell of a podcast and a hell of a day, frankly. This is a 350 day podcast effectively, isn't it? It feels like this podcast has taken us as long to record as this season has to complete. So let's play out with a lovely piece of jazz music from Lloyd Miller called Gol Egendum. You can find us on Twitter at Stadio. You can find us on Instagram at Stadio Football. Our website is stadio.football. Don't forget to check the ringer.com forward slash soccer. We hope everyone's staying safe and well. I hope you're all looking after each other and yourselves. Anything else you want to add, Musa, before we get out of here? Enjoy your last week of July, everyone. I mean, I say that because I'm trying to do it a, a bit less work this week because I'm conscious that with the pandemic and getting back to work, we're all grinding, but one thing I really, really noticed as I sort of stepped back from everything this weekend was just how easy it is to become engulfed in the next deadline. So if there's any way for any of you at all to take even half an hour out to step away from the deadline, then do it because it's something I've not been doing enough of recently and already the last two days of doing it, the benefits have been immense. So yeah, just um, try and, in the words of James Harden, step back whenever you can. That's all. You're going to talk about step backs. At least drop Luka Doncic. No, 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 because Harden's are so dramatic. Take care, everyone. We'll be back on Thursday with a very special episode. See you there.